Uh, we do want to welcome uh, all our singles here for the Carolina Singles Weekend and a lot of uh, happy faces. We had this morning Mr. Crockett, last night Mr. Crockett, and Mr. Charles O'Gwen and Dr. Scott Winnell making presentations. So we have several more activities scheduled for this evening and tomorrow. And because of the large crowd we have here, I'm talking to all our brethren around the world, we've had to have uh, two services this morning and this afternoon. Thank you for your prayers, by the way. Mr. League mentioned Dr. Meredith's uh, special presentation in London and uh, was very successful. We just got news that there were 290 present, 100 members, and 190 new people. So I know Dr. Meredith will be very pleased with that, and uh, thank you again very much for your prayers. Uh, we are going out in these special presentations all over the world. Of course, Mr. Rod King spoke in Pretoria, South Africa, and Cape Town. And again, just recently, as I mentioned, we were in New York and uh, Los Angeles. God has given us all a very high calling. We're called to become kings and priests, as you know, in Revelation 5 and verse 10. It's a very high calling. And we are now in continual training for those high positions to assist Christ in his kingdom. So how do you view your calling? Do you look at that awesome calling with enthusiasm and commitment? Do you know that the world needs you? As Dr. Meredith has often said, we have what the world needs. What the world has, to some extent, are the world's worst leaders. This is Parade Magazine, and every 10 or 15 years, they will produce what they consider the world's worst leaders. And God has called you to be the world's best leaders. Winston Churchill challenged youth in his book called Roving Commission My Early Life, 1930. And he gave this strong challenge to young people. Come on now, all you young men, all over the world. You are needed more than ever now to fill the gap of a generation shorn by the war. You have not an hour to lose. You must take your place in life's fighting lines. 20 to 25. These are the years. Don't be content with things as they are. The earth is yours in the fullness thereof. Enter upon your inheritance. Accept your responsibilities. You will make all kinds of mistakes, but as long as you are generous and true and also fierce, you cannot hurt the world or even seriously distress her. She was made to become bewooed and won by youth. Well, quite an eloquent challenge by Winston Churchill for young men and women to take their responsibilities. Will you accept that challenge? Will you accept your calling to train effectively as kings, future kings, and priests? Let's turn to Matthew, the 20th chapter, for the classic example of leadership and ambition. And, of course, in this case, it bordered on selfish ambition. Matthew 20, starting with verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. Well, of course, she wanted the best for her sons. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said, 
to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. What could she ask for anything greater? But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And these young men said, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Now this was very ambitious. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Yes, some of those world's worst leaders, and you can take a look at this news item afterwards. Yes, they lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Now, we don't normally think of ourselves as being slaves, let alone perhaps being servants. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I hope that's a part of your character, a part of your identity, of who you are, what you are. That You consider yourself a bond servant, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. You are here to train to serve. Because in the future, you'll be serving cities, nations, and perhaps major sectors of the world's educational systems. Perhaps selfishness was a part of this characteristic that these individuals had. And I hope that we don't fall into that trap of selfishness, that we are ones who are called to be givers in this life. Let's think about or discuss today several principles and keys for effective Christian leadership. And that's the title of the sermon, Effective Christian Leadership. And Jesus said in Matthew 23:11, a parallel account or actually a reinforcement of what he mentioned in Matthew 20, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. How can you become a more effective Christian servant. We're going to discuss briefly 12 keys. Number one is to face reality. You've probably heard of the proverbial ostrich, that the ostrich, when it faces danger, supposedly hides its head in the sand, but its body is still up there for everyone to see and uh, for being vulnerable. That's not true. It's only a myth. But that comes from uh, what I've read, in, at least in research, that the ostrich does hide its head in a bush when it's danger, and its body is still left out. God gives us a lot of lessons from animals. And, uh, of course, Job, I won't turn there, but uh, you can read Job 39, verses 13 through 18, in which God said he's deprived the ostrich of wisdom. The ostrich is so stupid that it will actually crush its own eggs. It will actually step on its own eggs. It's that uh, much deprived of wisdom. But 
ostriches run very fast. In fact, the uh, historic uh, study is that uh, the rich shakes would actually uh, uh, offer a hundred horses, one historic account, for a horse that could beat an ostrich, how fast ostriches are. But the proverbial ostrich does not face reality. It hides its head in the sand, is the, the myth. But what about you? Do you face up to reality? Of course, we've had a generation of escapism, and everything was entertainment. I'm just not going to face up to my responsibilities. I am going to enjoy life to the hilt with women, song, wine, drink, and other forms of entertainment. Timothy, as an evangelist, was probably a little shy. And we get a hint of that, as we did last uh, Pentecost, when the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 6, and he said, you need to, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Now, why did he say that to Timothy? When you read through First and Second Timothy, you see that the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy to be bold and to fulfill his responsibilities. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's turn to Luke, the 12th chapter, Luke 12. I know that uh, I was very depressed. You've probably heard me tell my story before in 1959 when I got out of the Army. And all I could see on the horizon was nuclear war between the superpower Soviet Union and the United States. To just think of all the disaster movies that I've seen of the world just becoming an incinerated relic just with the nuclear war. But I had to hope against hope. And here in uh, Luke, the 12th chapter, uh, Jesus said we need to discern the signs of the times. We'll get back to my story here in a moment. But Luke 12 and verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be hot weather, and there is. And Jesus really laid it on the line to them, Hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? The prophesied Messiah, and we know about that, the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9, verse 27, that the prophesied Messiah that all of the Jews were waiting for was there, and they didn't discern the signs of the times. Do we discern the signs of the times? That we have a sobriety about us because we know that we are coming to the end of an age. And we have to face that age with courage, with faith, with confidence, with boldness to keep growing and to be trained in leadership, effective Christian leadership. When we take a look at the world news, we understand that uh, just three weeks ago, just the week ago, four weeks ago, just the Sabbath before my lecture in Manhattan, we had to change from Manhattan to Brooklyn because we had more people sign up than we had room for at the YMCA on 47th Street. 
but there was a Times Square car bomber on 45th Street, just uh, oh several blocks away from the YMCA where our new congregation, Metro New York, is meeting. We had a good response to that in Brooklyn, and then uh, Mr. Jonathan McNair had 36 that followed up, and 29 from that wanted to meet the following Sabbath, which would have been last Sabbath, and Mr. McNair, Jonathan McNair said in New York, we now finally have a Metro New York congregation. So we're very happy of that to start a Manhattan congregation of 29. But the point is, there was a Times Square time bomb, uh, that is, car bomb, that, that failed. What if that had gone off? And then there was the 20, December 25th airplane attempt of a suicide bomber that failed. Uh, God has been merciful to us over time, but we are living in dangerous times. Our news and prophecy that you've read in our church bulletin, as well as in the world ahead, had the headlines, EU difficulties ahead, water woes in Egypt, the Jordan River is dying. And if you've heard recently, the past couple days, that the um, meteorologists are predicting uh, one of the most severe uh, summers or hurricane seasons between 16 and 23 hurricanes. Of course, they predicted that some years ago, and I think there are only two or three, but we'll see how their prediction lasts. Iran, of course, is a nuclear danger and becoming more so as time goes on. Some years ago, high school students were very fearful of nuclear war. I think as time goes on, uh, people forget that and they're not as afraid, as afraid. But I was depressed because that's all I could see on the horizon in 1959. And then I began to read the Bible and find out from the World Tomorrow radio broadcast and the Plain Truth magazine, that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. And all of the depression and all of the tension that I had released because I knew that there was a good end to the story, that Christ is coming back to prevent Holocaust, that is, total cosmicide. We read, of course, that, about that in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. Well, I just turn there to John 14. Of course, we look forward to the next annual festival, which is the Feast of Trumpets, and signifying, again, the return of Christ and the day of the Lord and all of the events leading up to the return of Christ. But this encouraged me years ago. And Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. To me, that was the greatest news that I had ever heard in my life. Uh, growing up in a Protestant denomination, I hadn't heard about the second coming of Christ. And that gave me confidence, gave me peace of mind that I knew that the world was going to continue beyond man's cosmicide or attempted cosmicide. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. We need to face reality. But in facing reality, we can have a soundness of mind and a peace of mind. 
Let's turn to Revelation, the first chapter. Revelation, the first chapter. Of course, I've challenged uh, our audience here to know the Bible. And uh, let me ask here again uh, a uh, Bible question for you as we turn to Revelation 1. How many of you know and can quote the last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 21? How many of you can? Okay. We have three people, Mr. and Mrs. Lyons and Mr. Partian and uh, J.C. Thank you. Uh, very good. Very good. I hope you all know the first verse. How many of you know the first verse in the Bible? In the beginning, very good, very good. God created the heavens and the earth. The last verse in the Bible says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Again, talking about something that is comforting, reassuring to all of us. Revelation 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Historians and some biblical scholars say all this is historic. But of course, this all hasn't happened. The new heavens and the new earth are not here yet. It hasn't all been fulfilled. Who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all that he saw. Blessed, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. How many of you have, think you have at least, read fully the whole book of Revelation? Let's see your hands. Oh, excellent. Okay, that is 91%. The other 9% of you need to read through the whole book of Revelation. He says, and keep those things. There is a blessing. We mentioned this and emphasized that on the telecast and in our articles because the world does not, it dismisses the book of Revelation. And yet it tells us the future, our ultimate calling, and our ultimate destiny. So I want to encourage all of you to face reality. And, of course, you do that by watching world news. You know, Luke 21, 36, he's called us as a church to be the watchman for Israel, as it tells us in Ezekiel 33 and verse 7. So number one in preparing for effective... Christian leadership is to face reality. And of course, we do have God's promises. Well, let's just turn back there briefly when we think about the stresses and the trials and the tribulation to come. God gives us this wonderful promise here in Psalm 91, the Psalm of Protection. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Remember the Ten Commandment movie quoted part of that, and this may be a psalm of Moses, Psalm 90 is. 
nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays at waste at noonday. Verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because, verse 9, you have made the Eternal, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. A very encouraging promise of God, the promise of protection. So number one is to face reality. Number two is to exercise wisdom and judgment. Let's turn to James, the first chapter. Exercise wisdom and judgment. How many fools are out in the world? God has called us as servant leaders to exercise wisdom and judgment. James, the first chapter, James 1. Here he tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom, verse 5, James 1, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. So ask and you shall receive, you know, as it says in Matthew 7 and verse 7. And Luke 11, verse 13, where he says, If we, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? When was the last time you asked God for His Spirit? We need to be renewed daily in our minds with God's Spirit. Then, of course, the parallel account in um, Matthew, uh, if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you good things to those who ask? So God is just willing. He's the great giver. He's willing to give you all things. And one of those, of course, is wisdom. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we need to have an eye that is single, a purpose that is wholehearted, a commitment that is sure that we are dedicated for the goal that God has set before us of his kingdom. James, the third chapter, of course, gives us the kind of wisdom that we need. He talks about a demonic wisdom. And that's a carnal wisdom. And some people are like that. They are so super critical. I've mentioned before about one church member, not here, but years ago, who was a self-appointed spot remover. He just went around, you know, criticizing everyone in the congregation. He was a critic. He didn't have the wisdom from above. We need that wisdom from above. What is that like? He goes on to say, Here in uh, verse 17 of James 3, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we need to pray for the wisdom that comes from above. One of the definitions of wisdom is the ability to discern inner qualities and relationships. Another one is insight or good sense. Of course, um, what was that one famous common sense? Um, Anyway, it'll come to me about common sense. A wise attitude or course of action. So 
God gives us this form of wisdom that is from above, we need to pray for that wisdom. And we need to pray for righteous judgment as well. Let's turn back to Exodus 18. Because not only, of course, are we called as kings and priests, but also as judges. He told us in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So we have to learn to exercise righteous judgment. Exodus, the 18th chapter, those who were judges had a particular characteristic. Exodus 18, here and starting with uh, verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times, that it may be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall of themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. And, of course, we have uh, practiced that form of government in the past, in the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in Big Sandy, Texas, in 1972, I believe it was, we had 15,000 people. Of those 15,000 people, 9,000 were camping on the grounds, about 6,000 in the Piney Woods, and about 3,000 across uh, Lake Loma. And how was it organized? We had captains of thousands, just as it mentions right here, uh, captains of uh, rulers of uh, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And yes, when you have uh, 9,000 people camping, there are carnal uh, conflicts and sparks will fly. Uh, but as long as we had certain organization, it worked. And that was an awesome and a very inspiring feast. I still remember it. It was a great feast. But we must pray for wisdom and judgment. And what is the basis for judgment? Remember, Jesus said, judge righteous judgment, don't judge by appearance. And how many of us have made that mistake when uh, someone looks at us with a, a scowl and you realize, what, what has he got against me? And he doesn't have anything against me. He's just got a sick stomach. He's got a, a poor stomach ache. And you have to realize you don't judge by appearance, but you judge righteous judgment. So number two is exercise wisdom and judgment. But what is that judgment based upon? Number three, learn more about God's law. Learn more about God's law. We sang Psalm 1, but let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 119, with which you're mostly familiar. Psalm 119. Here is a man after God's own heart who wrote this acrostic. And as you know, an acrostic is a, an organizational pattern of the letters in the Hebrew, in this case, the 22 letters, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, He, Val, Zion. Uh, each of those eight verses start with the, the particular alphabet in Hebrew. All of those in verses 1 through 8 start with the letter Aleph. And uh, actually, in my New King James Bible, it, it shows the Hebrew letter in each of the uh, eight verse sections. Psalm 119 and verse 97. And David says, Oh, how love I, or how I love your law. I still have the King James memorized. Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. And when I've taught at uh, Living Youth Camp and the Summer Educational Program and Worldwide years ago, I could tell those teenagers from ages 12 to 17 or 18 that you can be wiser than your high school teachers, your middle school teachers. You may not have the technical expertise in mathematics or science, but you can have moral expertise far beyond that of your teacher. Why? Because they have the absolute moral standard of God's Ten Commandments. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Understanding. Understanding of who we are, what we are, what's the purpose, and what's the meaning of life. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And part of our societal problems today are that we condone every evil way. We want to be fair. We want to be tolerant. And so we condone evil. We want to be politically correct. I say we in the societal uh, sense. But how many of you hate evil? We have the attack speech and spokesman club. And uh, that is uh, really a, an incredible uh, opportunity to identify what is evil and label it as evil. Dr. Pierre, who just gave the sermonette, gave an attack speech uh, in our spokesman club this past spring, and he really got so riled up, he smashed the lectern and it broke. So uh, we know that he can fulfill this particular scripture. Therefore, I hate every evil way. And of course, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the eternal is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy in the froward mouth do I hate. It says, and yes, there is something you should hate. You should hate evil and not condone it, as so many of our people do in the world. So what is the basis for judgment? It's God's law. You judge. It's like one person was criticizing our magazine and saying, you're, you're, uh, you're too political. You're, you're attacking the Democrats or you're attacking the Republicans. I said, no. Our basis for commentary is the Ten Commandments. When we see something going on in society or in government that is transgressing the Ten Commandments, that's what we comment on. We're not Republican. We're not Democrat. We are Christian. And we are basing our judgments on the Ten Commandments. So learn more about God's law and focus on the Ten Commandments. Of course, our children um, are memorizing, I guess, uh, Mrs. Lyons, I guess they know the Ten Commandments now in short form. Yes, very good. Thank you. And uh, I was just uh, reading in USA News here recently, a recent poll said that 18 to 29-year-olds, only, only 35% of that demographic read the Bible or any sacred book. In other words, 18 to 29-year-olds in general do not read the Bible or sacred books. Only 35% of them do. 
And, of course, with our high-tech age, uh, most people don't read anymore. And yet Jesus attacked the Pharisees and said four times, Have you never read in the Bible? That's why I've been emphasizing to our Charlotte congregation here to know the Bible. And just let me encourage those of you who uh, want to, um, let's say, meet the challenge here of uh, the Charlotte congregation. How many of you can recite all 66 books in the King James order? I'll see your hands. Very good. Okay, that's about 20 of you. Uh, the other 146 have a long way to go. And, of course, uh, the next step is to recite all of the books of the Bible in the original order. And that's in Lesson 1 of Tomorrow's World Bible Study course. It's in the chart in our booklet, uh, The Bible, Fact or Fiction. Right in the center gives the seven inspired sections of the Bible. And by the way, I, uh, again, I'm not going to cease encouraging you to know the Bible. Because the Word of God is going to last forever. And it needs to be written on our hearts and minds as a part of the new covenant that we are partakers of. And we need to use our minds to have that as a part of our minds. Let's turn to Luke 24:44. just as a, it's not exactly an aside. It's a part of this point of learning more about God's law. But we could addend to that, know your Bible. And what are the three major sections of the Old Testament? And Jesus himself made it clear in Luke 24 and verse 44. Luke 24 and verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So it's called the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms are the first section of the writings called the Ketuvim. So the Old Testament, you'll find the uh, Hebrew or interlinear books called Tanakh, T-N-K. Torah, Nevi'im for the prophets, Ketuvim for the writings. And then you have the New Testament, uh, four sections, which you can read about in our booklet, um, Bible, Fact, or Fiction. So... In fact, I am even going to risk reciting the 22 books of the Old Testament and let you know what they are. Because there are 22 letters of the uh, Old Testament, and of course when you take 22 books of the Old Testament, add them to 27 of the New, what do you have? 49, 7 times 7. If you have 39 books in the Old Testament plus 27, you have 66 books, which is man's number. But God's number is 22, although... I questioned why my basketball jersey number was 22. I played basketball for the Big Sandy Ambassador College faculty, and my number was 22. And I was curious as what is the biblical meaning of that? There was a book in the library that said the significance of biblical numbers. And I looked up the book, of the uh, number 22, and it said, 22, the number of chaos and confusion. Uh, no... No, that's not correct, because God would not have had 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and 22 books in the Old Testament. So, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books for the law. The prophets, Joshua and Judges is one book, 
Judges. Samuel and Kings is the second book. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, five books. And the sixth book of the law is the twelve. So that's the, uh, you have five books of the law, six in the prophets. Then you have 11 books in the writings, and that's the most difficult, so I'm risking here publicly trying to remember. Okay, it's Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and then I remember Sarah Lee, uh, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah's one book, and First and Second Chronicles is the 11th book. So all those are 11 books for the writings. So you have 22 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, for 49. Again, if you're going to be a servant leader, you need to know the Bible. Learn more about God's law, number three. Number four is to apply the seven laws of success. How many of you can recite all seven of the seven laws of success? One, two, three, four. Hesitant. Okay, very good. Five. 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 Five out of 166. Five. Uh, five. That's 161 of you need to learn the seven laws of success. Did you read my article in the March-April Living Church News on seven keys to godly success? Well, I hope well, you better find that booklet and, uh, and read it. Well, let me uh, just review them, of course, to, for you. Number one is to set the right goal. Number two is to educate or prepare yourself. And again, we never cease learning. Number three is to maintain good health. And all our LYC campers know that number four is... Thank you. All right. Way to go, guys. <laughs> and number five is resourcefulness. It's uh, the emergency law that Mr. Armstrong talked about. Number six is persevering towards your goal. I just gave a sermon on that recently, principles for persevering. And number seven is to seek God's continual guidance. If you're going to be an effective Christian servant, apply the seven laws of success. We can think of Worldly goals that were set. President John F. Kennedy in 1960 set a goal to have a man on the moon before the end of the decade. And in uh, 1969, uh, a man, Neil Armstrong, set foot on the moon. A goal was fulfilled. Number four, apply the seven laws of success. Number five is develop your mind and abilities. Let's turn to Matthew 22. Develop your mind and abilities. Many people just dissipate their lives with entertainment and don't put in the effort, the sacrifice, the blood, sweat, and tears to learn and to grow and to gain skills and talents and abilities and to improve their skills. Matthew 22 and verse 37. Jesus said unto the Pharisee who asked him, a lawyer, what is the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's verse 37, Matthew 22. We need to love God with our minds. The Greek word is denoia, uh, meaning understanding. 
So God has given us a mind that far exceeds that of animals because he's given us the spirit in man that far transcends the output of the brains and instinct of animals. But God wants us to develop that mind and to have that understanding. Let's turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. I've just been encouraged to know even here in the local congregation we have uh, those working on bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs, and there are here uh, who've certified in life-saving, CPR. Uh, you need to gain uh, those skills and abilities, whatever they may be. And, uh, of course, uh, we have one working on a CPA here, and we wish him uh, success. You've already, what, passed three? Passed two. Okay, well, uh, and you're waiting to find out whether you're passed the third. No, oh, okay, you still have to take it. All right. Anyway, all the best to Mr. Ruddleston working on his CPA. Uh, we need to pray for him in that. But keep growing. Here in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we learn that part of that growth is communication skills. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So we have to keep thinking that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ we need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be growing in the skills of communication. I think I mentioned this one to you before, but uh, the comic strip uh, Zitz it has Jeremy as a teenager. And Mom says, Jeremy, I was looking at your Facebook page today, and I, and Jeremy gets very upset that Mom was looking at his Facebook page. He said, what? Why? Mom, Facebook is for social networking. We live in the same house. If you have something to say, just text me. I mean, you talk about the disintegration of relationships, that is a personification of it. When, you know, the teenager says, I'm not going to talk to you personally, you got to text me. You know, we live in the same house. That's abominable. Of course, it's a comic strip, we understand. But is it symptomatic of what goes on in our society. We need to develop our minds and abilities, yes. We need to uh, be more skilled in computers and music and art and athletics and uh, writing. Of course, we can always uh, review those who are uh, submitting. In fact, we've just reviewed or are reviewing the, the uh, contest, essay contest on uh, why I believe, why does God exist? So I've read uh, several of them are just excellent uh, essays written by those uh, who contributed. But uh, again, we need to improve our skills, and many need to develop marketable skills. You know, it was a uh, Jewish saying that said, if you do not teach your son a trade, you teach him to steal. In other words, you may have a career goal, but you must be able to have a marketable skill, whether it's plumbing auto mechanics, word processing, child care, uh, something that you can contribute to society and support and contribute to your family. So develop marketable skills. We need to love God with all our mind. That's sermon number 540. You can get that on our uh, website. And also, of course, the uh, Bible study course. How do we uh, grow in understanding and knowledge? Well, lesson 46 of the old uh, Ambassador Bible Correspondence Course, How to Pray Effectively, Lesson 46. I just came across this the other day. Time spent in prayer 
is not time wasted, but time invested at big interest. Schedule your time for the activities of the day, including a certain amount of time for prayer. Mr. Herbert Armstrong has repeatedly stressed that Christians should definitely spend at least a bare minimum of one half hour on their knees daily in order to keep growing spiritually. The Bible does not specify the exact required amount of daily prayer, but a Christian should try to spend near an hour of prayer each day and may sometimes spend much more than this, Luke 6 and verse 12. Now, that's not a, a standard that you must religiously uh, apply, although I did religiously apply that for probably 30 years or so. That is, I did not miss a day uh, praying a half an hour on my knees, even when I was out hunting with other people, even when I was sleeping on the floor with 25 other ambassador students on a minister's living room floor. I felt I had to get up and stay close to God. Now, you can pray, of course, walking, and I do pray walking and sitting and and in bed, which, uh, of course, is a little uh, uh, suspect, but nonetheless, uh, we still need to keep praying. And uh, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 3, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Everyone is going to bow his knees who has knees to, to bend. Some of us can't bend our knees because of old age or other problems, uh, but God expects all of us to bend our knees before him and to cry out before him. So number five is develop your mind in abilities and, of course, acknowledging God in that way that you love him with all your heart, soul, understanding, and your mind. And, of course, Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow! in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So number five, again, is develop your mind and your abilities. Number six is to study biblical leadership resources. We're talking about effective Christian leadership. Of course, one of those obvious sources for us is Living University. Uh, There are two courses uh, Theology 226, Christian Leadership. I'll just read the course description. This course deals with the principles of Christian leadership and service. Topics include foundations of leadership, leadership skills, challenges facing leaders, and case studies of great leaders of the Bible and secular history. Upon completion, students should be able to demonstrate the qualities of a servant leader in a variety of settings. So that's uh, Christian Leadership Theology 226. And then we have another course that is Theology 236, Christian Camp Leadership. Of course, Mr. Munson teaches that. And uh, this course is designed to prepare students for service as a Christian camp counselor or activity leader. Emphasis is on techniques of Christian camp counseling and leadership, camp safety, activities, and program development. Upon completion, students should be able to demonstrate knowledge of the various philosophies, administration, and programming of Christian camps and serve in the capacity of a Christian camp counselor or activity leader. So we don't want to overlook the obvious. If we're growing in leadership, uh, these are two possibilities for you, uh, two courses at Living University. Another area, of course, is Living Leadership Course. And for those singles who have the uh, handouts, the packet, I had to put in the packet the uh, table of contents for the Living Leadership course. 
We completed ours here uh, about a year ago last March with uh, last, uh, class number 23, Understanding Church Government Part 1. So I'd like you to review, you singles who have the packet, to, re- to review those class titles, leadership foundations, leadership skills, uh, leadership issues. And uh, if there is one particular class that you miss that you'd like to take, uh, see your area pastor, and uh, perhaps they ev- he even recorded the class that would be helpful to you. So that's another resource for you in Living Leadership Course. Another resource for studying biblical leadership is our sermon library. Uh, just go to our website, lcg.org, and uh, click on the sermons. Uh, there we have Servant Leadership, sermon number 476 by Dr. Roderick Meredith, uh, sermon number 553, Five Qualities of Godly Leadership by Dr. Douglas Winnale, and uh, sermon number 584, How God Prepares Us to Be Leaders by Mr. Lambert Greer. So again, these resources are available to you. And those of you who have uh, 24-7 access to um, the web can uh, access those particular sermons. Uh, There's one other sermon that's associated with leadership, and that's by Mr. Gene Hilgenberg, Uh, Number 578, 12 Traits of Great Teachers, because we're called to become kings, and what does a priest do? A priest teaches. That's one of his uh, responsibilities. So number six is study biblical leadership resources. Number seven, a Christian leader has strong biblically-based beliefs. Now, who are you? You are what you believe. You are what you think. As it tells us in Proverbs 23, 7, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. You are what you think. What do you believe? I've challenged uh, our church members and students for over the years to write their own essay on what I believe. And uh, just remarkable. I had, uh, didn't have it with me, but a 16-year-old girl at SEP wrote a remarkable a summary of what she believed. It was very, very inspiring, and I hope that you will do that. Let's turn to Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark 1 and verse 14. Mark 1, verse 14, again, more familiar scriptures to you. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We are a faithless generation. We need to have faith. We need to believe what God gives us. And, of course, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, as it tells us in Romans 10, verse 17. And, of course, if you haven't checked out our official statement of fundamental beliefs, you need to do that. Just go to lcg.org and click on the About Us in the left-hand column, and you'll have the official statement of fundamental beliefs. And, of course, you need to study that and prove from the Bible whether those beliefs are something that you need to internalize and make a part of your very character, a very part of your personality. Number seven, a Christian leader has strong biblically-based beliefs. Number eight, have vision and hope for the world tomorrow. And, of course, we uh, rehearse this every Feast of Tabernacles to have vision. Proverbs 29, 18, without revelation, 
uh, the people cast off restraint, or in the King James, without vision the people perish. But he that keeps the law, happy is he. We had a telecast here recently, Hope for the Future. And uh, I've just always enjoyed over the years the uh, contributions from some of our campers. And uh, I won't, well, I guess I'll share it with you. I've done this at the feast so many times. Uh, this is, I had the campers when they talked about the tomorrow's world or the world tomorrow uh, to uh, write up about their dream house. And uh, anyway, uh, Betsy Dawkin did this at age 14. And uh, it, I just really like this as my dream house in the world tomorrow. It's uh, two A-frames side by side with a waterfall in between. And there's an atrium, there's a study, there's the water comes down in the dining room where you can get fish out of the stream and a media room and uh, just, just a wonderful dream house. Uh, this was an essay by one of the campers, My World Tomorrow House. When you come in, you will go through a porch with wicker furniture and hanging plants. You will open the sturdy mahogany door into a sunken living room. This will have carpeting made of bearskin, and the furniture will be soft and comfortable so I can really live in it and enjoy it. Right in the center would be a trap door you could open to go down into an underground game room. Maybe that's where it belongs. In it would be pinball machines, card tables, television sets, stereos, and bumper cars. <laughs> well, that's her dream house. It was then, anyway. My house would have five bedrooms, a kitchen, large, a dining room, and three bathrooms. My house would also have a nursery where it could take care of small children, mine and others, and could teach them things they need to learn about God and life. They would have lots of fun. One more thing my house would have would be a deep well where the cool, clear spring water would come up from the ground and flow through to Lake Big. Bubble Spring would be big enough for four or five people to swim in it. My house and the grounds outside would be beautiful. So that's from a teenager uh, thinking about the world tomorrow, tomorrow's world, and having vision for the time to come. So have vision and hope for the world tomorrow. And, of course, we know peace is coming. Christ is the Prince of Peace the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Isaiah 9 and verse 7. And, of course, we have our booklet, The World Ahead, What It Will Be Like. I hope all of you have read that. I won't uh, survey you on that point. Number eight was have vision and hope for the world tomorrow. Number nine is to lead by your example. Of course, Matthew 5, let's turn there, Matthew the fifth chapter. We can't help but communicate. For those of uh, you who have been in communication classes, there's the axiom, you cannot not communicate. In other words, if you try not to communicate, you are communicating something. You're communicating and you don't want to communicate. So we are setting examples one way or another, whether we realize it or not. And Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, where he talked about uh, the Beatitudes, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So we are the spice of the world. We preserve the world. 
And, of course, Jesus said because of the elect, those days would be shortened, Matthew 24, 22. And so we are to be the salt of the earth. Uh, my wife and I get uh, Celtic sea salt. It's salt that's not been processed and has all these micronutrients in it and minerals. It's just very, very good. Number 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the light, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So are you setting a good example in being a light to the world? One of the keys of leadership that I taught uh, years ago at the camp was initiative. You know, should you have the wrong concept of leadership, leadership is not a title or a position. Leadership is effective serving. And so we had this classroom and purposely left it disorganized, and the class would come in and uh, be seated, and I would wait for the class to begin. And after I began the class, I would ask the campers, so do you see anything that needs to be done? Yes, the blackboard needs to be erased. Okay, you go ahead and erase the blackboard. Oh, what else? Oh, the chairs are all disorganized. They need to be arranged neatly. Okay, you do that. What else? Oh, the lights aren't on. Okay, you go ahead and turn the light switch on. Now, if they had initiative... Of course, those campers, they may not have felt they had the freedom to have that initiative, but they would have seen what needed to be done and do it. I know one person asked me uh, his job description one time. I said, see what needs to be done and do it. That's your job description. And sometimes we don't see what needs to be done. We had a case, I don't know if I mentioned that, where <clears throat> at one of our Tomorrow's World Special Lectures, the building was not as evident as the location where the meeting was taking place. And uh, so no one was outside to direct uh, people looking for our lecture. So I went outside, and some person came by and said, Is this the place? I said, Yes, this is the place. No one had gone out at that point in time to welcome our subscribers into the building. When you see a need, you fulfill it. That's leadership. And, of course, if it's a regular need, and you don't need anyone to tell you what to do necessarily. But I hope that all of us can see that, uh, that need. Uh, when you see a need that is a godly need, that you can step up to the plate and fulfill that particular need. You set an example. You become a light. By the way, we have an LCN article, May, June 2002, The Power of Example. And how do you serve? I uh, worked for Chicago Bridge and Iron Company as an engineering trainee one summer at the Exxon Refinery in Bayonne, New Jersey. And uh, we were doing mechanical work. I was doing uh, grinding, a 15-pound grinder, grinding welds, uh, and I got big forearms that summer. But what they do, they have a what they call a pusher. And a pusher is like a, a supervisor, but what he does is go around to various projects of various sections of the big, larger project, and he gets involved, and he actually does some of the work and helps the guys. So, look, you need to do A, B, and C, but he then gets in there and helps them do the work himself. He just doesn't say, well, you do this and do that. He actually helps them by example. And that was quite an example to me to see that uh, 
that form of organization and motivation. Let's turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. How do we serve God? What kind of an example are we setting? Are we the light of the world? Are we grumps or are we radiating smiles and a positive attitude? Here in Psalm 100, again, and I remember it from the old King James more than the new King James, but Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord, how? With gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He tells us to serve him with gladness. I won't turn there, but Deuteronomy 28, 47. The curses that come upon our society. God says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. All these curses have come upon you. As you for the abundance of things that he has. So we need to remember that God wants us to serve with cheerfulness. I think that's in the King James of Deuteronomy 28:47, the New King James, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, and to have that attitude of thanksgiving. Without that attitude, some will be taking upon themselves the curse. So how can you help? Well, of course, you can help by asking your pastor, um, how can I help in the area pastor? Uh, not what title or position can you give me, but how can I serve in the local congregation? And there are many times, that, uh, many ways that you can help others. So number nine is lead by your example. Number ten is to be courageous and bold in the faith. We understand when we look at the heroes of the Bible, and Joshua and David and others, they had this courage. And God wants us to stand up for what we believe. We heard a sermon by Mr. Mario Hernandez here a couple weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. And here were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they were not careful to answer the king. They said, we will not bow down to your idol. They were thrown into a fiery furnace, and God delivered them. We need to have that kind of courage and faith and realize that we are dedicated, we are committed, we are bold in the faith, uh, we might just turn to that one, uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 13. Uh, these are the qualifications of a deacon. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 3, 13. Great boldness in the faith. Do you have boldness in the faith? If you don't, ask God for more of that boldness. Know what you believe. Take responsibility for your decisions. And of course, he tells us that we don't need, we should not fear man. Uh, I'll just turn there, Hebrews 13, uh, verses 4 and 5. That uh, Hebrews 13, verses, well, verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetous, covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How many times have I claimed that promise? So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear what man can do to me. That's quoted from Psalm 56 and verse 11. But have great boldness, be courageous, and be bold in the faith. Number 11 is to pray for others. If you're a servant leader, you're serving others by praying for them. Turn to 1 Timothy, the second chapter, 1 Timothy 2. Again, you know about importuning or intercessory prayer. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And my wife live, and I live out in Mint Hill, and we thought, well, you know, we lived uh, just off South Orange Grove for a good uh, 12 years or so, and we would hear the sirens just every day. It seems emergency vehicles or police vehicles. Uh, the Apartians lived down the street from us. And uh, yet, you know, here in Mint Hill, we're hearing sirens. And what do you do when you hear a siren? I pray that God will help, if it's an emergency vehicle, that God will bless and help that emergency vehicle fulfill his duty or to perform some kind of helpful service. We pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you pray for your enemies? You know, Jesus told us to pray that and said that in Matthew, the fifth chapter. If you're going to become perfect in unconditional love as God has towards us, he said there in Matthew 5 and uh, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Pray for them, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Of course, you have the examples of Stephen, who was martyred, who, who prayed, the Lord lay not this sin to their charge as he was being stoned to death. And the Apostle James, uh, alleged, according to one of the, the histories, uh, was told that he uh, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church and prayed that God would forgive his executors. So pray for others. Your intercessory prayers make a difference. And, of course, Christ, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, ever lives to make intercession for you. You want a friend? You want someone to be close to? Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25. By the way, uh, there are only uh, five of you who are sleeping here this afternoon, so I, I just want to commend you uh, on that. The other uh, 161 are doing well. It is a little warm in here, so if, it, if, if you want to take off your jackets, you can, uh, since we're going for another half hour. But uh, nonetheless, uh, <clears throat> so number 11 is to pray for others. I remember one individual who um, I was, I suppose, a little jealous of. I guess at one time he was junior class president and, uh, at Ambassador College, very obnoxious, not very friendly, and uh, 
thought I was getting in a bad attitude about it, but I read that I should pray for my enemy, so I started praying for him. And you know, it came to me, I guess probably a superiority feeling of, oh, this poor slob, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. But anyway, when I prayed for him, those that angst and that anxiousness just left, and I had peace, praying for him that God would help him to learn what he needs to learn. And how many people we see around us who are selfish, uh, they don't know any better, and we pray that God will wake them up, that they can learn how to be giving rather than always taking. Calvin and Hobbes uh, were talking about a book about uh, selfishness, and uh, of course uh, Hobbes the tiger was saying to Calvin, what you doing? And Calvin sitting under a tree with a paper says, getting rich. And uh, Hobbes says, really? And uh, Calvin says, yep, I'm writing a self-help book. There's a huge market for this stuff. First, you convince people there's something wrong with them. That's easy because advertising has already conditioned people to feel insecure about their weight, looks, social status, sex appeal, and so on. Next, you convince them that the problem is not their fault and that they're victims, they are victims of larger forces. That's easy because it's what people believe anyway. Nobody wants to be responsible for his own situation. Finally, you convince them that with your expert advice and encouragement, they can conquer their problem and be happy. And so Hobbes the Tiger says to Calvin, Ingenious, what problem will you help people solve? And Calvin says, Their addiction to self-help books. <laughs> My book is called Shut Up and Stop Whining. <laughs> How to do something with your life besides think about yourself. Oh, really? I, I hope they're, you know, we all, some of us have self-pity. We get, oh, oh, woe is me, poor old me. And I, I think that Calvin really hit the nail on the head. Stop whining. Shut up and stop whining. How to do something with your life besides think about yourself. We're talking about effective Christian leadership. And uh, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Calvin, uh, Hobbes says to Calvin, the final frame here, you should probably wait for the advance for your book before you buy anything. He says, the trouble is, if my program works, I won't be able to write a sequel. So, so anyway, we all need to overcome selfishness and replace it with that godly attitude of giving. Number 12 is a Christian leader is a true Christian. Let's turn to Mark, the 8th chapter is a true Christian. Mark 8, verse 34. Mark 8 and verse 34. You know, when I went down the list of uh, qualities of choosing a mate, uh, Dr. Meredith had uh, taught a class, and I borrowed the lecture notes from my friend as I was uh, interested in a certain lady and uh, listed all these wonderful qualities about uh, you know, the other mate. You should consider the person's background, education, health, whether it's divorce in the family, uh, whether you've ever seen your prospective mate under pressure, and what kind of emotional stability that person has. And uh, But the bottom line was conversion. Is he or she converted? And uh, while we might uh, talk about this in a seminar sometime, I think it's something that uh, we all need to consider. Uh, 
and that is people sometimes assume that a prospective mate a prospective man or prospective woman, because he or she is in the church, is converted. You have to test the individual to make sure, is he or she converted? And if my wife was not converted, I don't know that we would have lasted this long. She put up with me for all these years. But I think she knows I'm converted too. But it's so important to understand that we all need to be deeply converted. Dr. Meredith has written about that in the recent Living Church News. So here in Mark, the 8th chapter, we find the commitment that Jesus requires. Mark 8 and verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Some individuals have crosses to bear. It may be uh, a health problem. It may be a thorn in the flesh like the Apostle Paul had. It may be a loss of a family member. It may have been some tragedy. It may have been a, a financial loss. It may have been something else. But Jesus said, look, you've got to bear whatever burdens you have. And not only to bear that burden, but to actively come after me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." I hope that none of you is ashamed of the name of Christ, that none of you are ashamed to stand up for your beliefs and your convictions based on the Bible. We should not ever be ashamed. Dr. Meredith wrote in his booklet, What is a True Christian? So although doing good works is an integral part of Christianity, there is much more. Yes, we certainly do need to work on developing gentleness, kindness, and service towards others, but we must also, in a very real sense, be conquered by God. Realizing that our own righteousness is simply not good enough, Isaiah 64, 6, Romans 3, 23, we must be totally surrendered to do God's will in every phase and facet of our lives, not just in good works. We must obey His Ten Commandments, keep holy the days He made holy, and let Jesus Christ live His life within us fully through the Holy Spirit. For we should, in fact, be preparing now to be kings and priests in Christ's soon coming world government. Christ and the Father need to know where we stand. We must demonstrate consistent obedience and genuine good character, a truly surrendered attitude, in order to be fit to assist Christ in his coming kingdom. And that's from What is a True Christian by Roderick Meredith. Number 12 is a Christian leader is a true Christian. God has given us a very high calling. We're all called to be kings and priests. We're training for leadership service in the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 20, in verse 26, Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. I hope you get to hear a recent sermon I gave, Responsiveness and Service. Some in God's church have deceived themselves with selfish ambition, but don't you be deceived. Think about your character, whether you are going to imitate the world, and of course you don't want to imitate the world's worst leaders, but you want to follow the biblical example of God's faithful servants. You think of King David when it tells us in Acts 12, 13, 22, I have found David to be the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. I, I think about can I have that kind of a heart? After my own heart who will do all my will. We pray every day, your will be done and not mine. Study the life of the Apostle Paul, who served and persevered through many trials and tests, and wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Or in the New King James, Imitate me, as I also imitate Christ. So God has promised us great joy, fulfillment, and satisfaction if we serve and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, brethren, let's grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Let's strive to be faithful servants. Let's strive to serve as effective Christian leaders.